You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Travis Scott Luther, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. Retirement was the farthest thing from my mind when I first went to Mexico. I was a teenager and on spring break, and really, I was mostly thinking about booze and girls and nightclubs and avoiding sunburn. But I would find myself going back to Mexico over and over again as a young parent, a doctor, trying to escape the pager and spending a week a year in paradise. This last time I went, I went with my parents to Puerto Vallarta, and I was looking around at the market and realized that it wasn't just native Mexicans there, but there were a number of Americans not travelers, not vacationers, but people who actually live there full term. And it shouldn't have surprised me. My parents had just bought a timeshare and were spending three to four weeks a year in Puerto Vallarta. And my aunt had just discovered an artist's enclave in San Miguel de Allende and had started to winter there to escape the cold, freezing New York winters. So maybe, just maybe, retiring to Mexico would be the right thing for me. Travis Scott Luther is an academic and an entrepreneur. He is an expert storyteller and uses this gift as a legal consultant and an author. The topic of his recent book, The Fun Side of the Wall, is the boomer migration to expat communities in Mexico. Travis, welcome to the show. Doc, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. I am really excited about this book. I just read it and it speaks to me in so many different ways. And I was just kind of thinking with all that's going on politically and this idea of our current administration trying to keep Mexican people out of the United States, it's kind of ironic that your book dropped at this time in our country's history. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, I mean, that was kind of one of the things I thought about as I was writing it. It was here we have this political climate in which we're trying to keep as many Mexicans out of the United States as we can and build walls to to keep them down south. Well, well, you know, what I've discovered is we have this this migration of our own, some of the most educated and affluent baby boomers uh, desperately trying to get out of here for Mexico. So yes, there is quite a bit of irony in it. 
I find the demographics incredibly interesting. But before we jump into that, let's talk about the title of the book, The Fun Side of the Wall. That came from one of the people you interviewed while doing your research. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's absolutely right. In fact, the title of the book forever up until probably two or three week, weeks before publication was When the Buffalo Roam, Baby Boomer Migration into Mexico, and it was kind of a play on home, home on the range. And then, yeah, I, I went back to San Miguel, actually, that you mentioned there in your intro, and was having dinner with one of the couples that was featured in the book. And he was telling that story about Trump's election and being a little nervous that people were going to think there was some kind of reflection on him as a US American that maybe he shared those values or something. And he said one of his Mexican friends came up behind him, put his arm around him and said, don't worry about it. You're on the fun side of the wall. And I thought, God, that's just such a, a really telling statement about some of the, you know, the graciousness of the Mexican people and just kind of what these folks are finding when they get there. Gracious is right. I can only imagine that feeling of discomfort as you're watching Trump get elected in 2016, living in one of these enclaves in Mexico and thinking that your neighbors are not going to be so happy with you when they hear what type of rhetoric, rhetoric is coming from the American government. Yeah. And I, I think that there's a sense down there that, and this is what I kind of kind of say is that the, the U.S. Americans who are going to Mexico are a certain kind of people who want to embed themselves in that culture and appreciate that culture. And it, it's really un, unusual to find somebody there who, who shares that kind of Trumpian view of the world. So I, like I said, the graciousness of the Mexican people makes it easy. But, you know, it, it's an important lesson because Imagine if they were treated, you know, the way that, that we, we treat uh, immigrants here or the way we talk about Mexican immigrants here. I just don't think that you would have these successful enclaves if that was the case. And I think that speaks a lot to this idea, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but just that Mexico could be dangerous and unwelcoming and Americans could be at risk, et cetera, et cetera. I think that this just kind of proves that those, those stereotypes about, that, about Mexico just aren't true. Let's go back to the beginning. You are a young guy. Where did this idea of studying boomer migration to Mexico come from? How did you get interested in this field and start your research? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm certainly not as young as I used to be, and I'm certainly not as young as I was, uh, you know, 11 or 12 years ago when I kind of got this idea. But, but yeah, I am an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur for about 25 years, and. You know, I, I also had a previous career as a, as a rock musician touring the country and stuff. And so in 2004, I decided I want to go back to college and finish a bachelor's degree. I had started a long time, you know, before that. And I also was an entrepreneur. I was, I was a, a digital entrepreneur, if you will. I had an office, but most of my work was online and I was getting busy. And so I was starting to kind of think about, you know, outsourcing to other professionals in Denver online. And then I read Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Work Week. And then shortly after that, I read The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. And I thought, good Lord, there is this whole world of entrepreneurs out there who are you know, trying to build businesses like I am. And I was you know, introduced to this idea of digital nomads. And so I thought, gosh, could I build a, one? Why, didn't, why, why have I always thought the world is dangerous and scary, which I kind of said in the book, right? So I started, I'm starting to have this realization in 2007 that you know, maybe the US doesn't offer the best of everything. Maybe my ideas about what the rest of the world looks like are wrong. And so I start using these business outsourcing experiments to try and get to know the people in other countries that I'm working with. You know, I might find a web developer in Brazil or a coder in India or something like that. And I just, I just got really curious about the world. And then again, 
I stumbled on this this idea of digital nomads, these people who basically take their laptop and they travel all over and they do the work. So now while I'm going to college, my business is accelerating and I'm getting super busy, I say, okay, I'm going to take advantage of, of the digital world too. And I'm going to try and outsource some projects and get to know some people. And from there, you know, I, I left, I finished my bachelor's degree. I knew I liked, liked sociology and social science. I wanted to go get my master's degree. And I also had this question going on in my head over and over again is why would anyone want to leave the United States? If we really have the best of everything, or we claim to have the best of everything, and this is the rhetoric we, we hear over and over again, why, why are so many of these successful young entrepreneurs leaving? Like, what are they looking for that they're not getting in the United States? And so as I wrapped up my first year of graduate school, I had to really start thinking about what my thesis was going to be. And I think that was the question I wanted to ask. I had a little self-examination on my own about my misconceptions about the rest of the world, and I wanted to know why other people left. And that was kind of the genesis of the thesis project, which became the basis for this book. And so I went to my advisor and I said, I think I want to study ex expats. I want to find out why they're leaving the United States. And she said, well, you can't, you can't just study every expat all over the world. You know, you've got to narrow this down to a very small group and, and a very specific survey. And so I found this group in the Lake Chapala region of Mexico, which is just south of Guadalajara, who were largely baby boomers. And I said, great, I found a, I found a small enclave of baby boomer expats in Mexico, and this is going to be the group that, that I study. The, the truth is I, I had no intention of studying Mexico per se. I just wanted to study the motivations of, of people who left. And I went in with the hypothesis that, that people who would leave the United States to retire in Mexico probably did so because they were poor and they couldn't afford a good quality of life in the United States. And as, as the book tells that that was wrong. <laughs> I want to jump into that in a moment, but just make a note of the fact that when you started looking into this interest, you were really thinking about digital entrepreneurs, which right. tend to be younger per mm -hmm. se, but you ended up studying boomers. It's an interesting transition, not exactly what you thought you were, not a direction you thought you were going in when you started. No, because, you know, and I mean, you've gone to graduate school. I think when you go to graduate school, you, you know, at some point you say, I've got to get out of graduate school to do that. You've kind of got to wrap up your research and your project and, and you've got to have a more limited scope so that you can get that done. And, and really Mexico and baby boomers was just like a matter of paring things down to a, to a smaller group that I could ask some, some more direct questions to. And yeah, it was, it was really interesting to, to go from, how do I set up a life for me and my family where we can work abroad and, 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 we can, and we can take advantage of all these different cultures around the world and not have such a narrow, narrow view of the world that I did growing up in a small rural community on the Washington-Idaho border? How can we have a, a bigger worldview and how can I enrich my family's lives to, oh my God, I've had this transformative experience of both the baby boomer generation, if you will, and more, more importantly for me personally, Mexico and getting and dispelling all these myths about what Mexico is and how terrible it is. And, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, that's how I knew that this work was true and important was because it, it totally transformed me. You know, I didn't go in with any kind of predetermined conclusion, you know, I just let it unfold naturally. And it, I mean, it was, it's, it was really transformative. Let's talk about some of those myths. You already mentioned this idea that people would move to Mexico because they're poor. And one of the conclusions you come to is that people move to Mexico because of the low cost of living and not because of a lack of money. What exactly does that mean? What's the difference? 
Well, the difference is, so, so money is a motivator in the sense that the people who explore Mexico tend to be more thoughtful and concerned about their money, but they are by no means low income. So they're looking, so Mexico at first becomes a place for them to ex- maybe extend their retirement dollars, have a better way of life, in some cases, just have a, a, a lower cost home base so that they could afford to travel more during the year. But it's not that they were saying, I don't have enough money to retire in the United States. It, they were saying, I want to retire better somewhere else, right? So that's, the, that's their first motivator. But that is not what necessarily keeps them there. Once they get to Mexico, there's, there's something else that they find that really keeps them there. But so money is the exploratory issue, but it, tends, it ends up not being the, the main motivator for, going, for staying in Mexico. One of the nuanced points you make, and this might speak to the baby boomer generation in general, is this idea that when questioned, expats thought that most of the retirement income was going to come from their 401k. But in reality, after they had been there for years, that that wasn't even one of the top five sources of income for them. So you're really talking about 2008 period where the Great Recession took place and a lot of people were concerned that they were seeing their nest egg disappear. Talk a little bit about that and how it relates to the boomers who ended up being expats in Mexico. Yeah, so there's certainly a cohort of baby boomers who were affected by that crisis who who lost, you know, 20-30% of their 401k. So the the question was basically what did you expect to retire on versus what are you living on now? And 401k was was the top thing. This is what people thought they were going to live off. Then boom, they're hit with this recession. They've lost 20 to 30% of their of their, you know, of their retirement or their wealth. And so then they are more motivated to to look into Mexico as as a place for their retirement. It will it, it will be interesting because we still have baby boomers who have not come out of the workforce yet, and you know they are my mother in law is one of them. You know they not only did they go through two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and two thousand nine, but here we are with COVID, and I don't even think we've we've begun to see the the financial effects of that and so i think it's becoming even more concerning for this 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 later group of baby boomers about how they're going to afford not not afford retirement per se but a a quality of life in retirement that's comparable to what they had envisioned for themselves when maybe they're going to get double dipped again on this covid thing you know it's just such a tough place to be what it definitely shows is if you think people were moving to Mexico because of weakened financial state, actually what you're seeing is the people who tended to move, especially after 2008, were the pivoters, right? They were the mm-hmm. people who had their eye on the ball, were mm-hmm. watching what was happening to their finances, mm-hmm. and were maybe even trying to make a move of strength to staunch the flow of what was happening in the market. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's another cohort there too. I mean, I, I remember reading this in the news, not thinking too much about it critically as an author at the time, because it w- wasn't my primary focus, but just knowing that people who had lost their job in the 2008 financial crisis, were, it was taking them longer to find another job when they found other jobs that were getting paid less than they had before. And so when I, you know, kind of fast forward to the, the last couple of years and, and the updated research for this book, I found that a lot of people who had lost their jobs or been laid off did try and find work for a long time. Right. But at some point they said, look, I'm, I'm six, five, six years from retirement. Anyway, this I'm, you know, I'm having a terrible time finding a, a, a comparable wage to what I had before. And then Mexico becomes a place to, 
just go retire now, right? Like if we go to Mexico, we can afford to do this five, six years earlier than if we were to stay in the United States. And and so I, you know, I say this lightly, but in a way it was a blessing in disguise for a fair amount of those people who kind of just got to kickstart their, their retirement or their, at least their financial freedom, if you will. You've now already mentioned a few of the key demographics of people who became expat boomers in Mexico. One is that they were generally higher salaried mm-hmm. and maybe had more money or were a little bit more well off than you had expected when you went into this. The other is this idea that they tended to retire five, six years earlier than the Mm -hmm. average boomer in America would. Tell us about some of the other demographics. Paint for us the avatar of the kind Mm -hmm. of person who was going to Mexico and building a life outside of the United States and how that compares to what you thought it would be when you started your research. Well, I'll just say what I thought it would be is I thought I would find lower income people who were in Mexico because they had to be, you know, I didn't know what that meant per se, but that they could not afford to live on their own well in the United States. What I found was that I, when I took my, what I call the Mexico boomers in the book and I, and I laid them across baby boomers in the United States, the Mexico boomers are upper, at least middle income, but mostly upper income earners. They are very educated. In fact, if the Mexico boomers were their own generation, they would be the most educated generation in US American history. So most of them had college degrees and a fair amount of them had professional degrees, graduate degrees, PhDs, MDs. So it, it so that probably helps also explain their their income level. You know, they were they were uh, majority Caucasian. They were majority, well, I don't want to say majority there there were more kind of the liberal democratic leaning on the political on the political spectrum leaning folks but that's not to say that there weren't some hardcore right winger you know conservative folks that i found too who largely had left the united states because they were frustrated with the political situation too you know they felt like they weren't getting their way either and so they had thrown their hands up and said forget it and then you have this like really important chunk of independence right people who 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 didn't necessarily identify with a specific political party or kind of found themselves in the middle of the road or something like that and i think it was they they made an equally large portion so it so it kind of is the independent, liberal, kind of Democrat, centrist crowd for the most part, Caucasian, highly educated, upper income. They tended to, to have traveled a bit when they were younger or for work, though there were still a lot of folks who had never been to another country in their life before deciding to go to Mexico and who had largely found Mexico through the internet and international retirement newsletters and things like that. Yeah, they were they are people who, who were not looking to... I don't want to pigeonhole Puerto Vallarta or anything, but like they, they, most of the people who end up in Mexico are not really looking, are not going to resorts per se, right? They're not looking for gated communities. There's this idea of importing a lifestyle that I mentioned in the book from previous research, not necessarily my own, but this idea that there are some folks who come from the United States, they want the exact same lifestyle that they had in the United States, but they want it cheaper. So they move into kind of gated resort communities with pools and well-manicured lawns and things of that nature. But really what you find is more of these folks are spread out across the the country and they're living in more authentic uh, Mexican cities and towns, if you will. And that that's something that is exciting for them, that they're, they're up for the challenge of learning a new language and being part of the culture. You know, the conclusion of the book is that the culture is a major driver for what, for what keeps them there. 
You mentioned culture, and that, of course, makes me think community. And you also mentioned the political leanings or affiliations Mm -hmm. of that kind of avatar of the boomer who came to Mexico. Do you think any of this was a response to the current political administration? Do you think there were a lot of people who were feeling left out either of even this administration or the last few administrations and that they just didn't feel like a part of the American community anymore and felt like they had to find a new place that fit them better? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a sentiment. But, you know, what I'll say is I had two rounds of research, so it's kind of cool because I had the benefit of this research I did 10 years ago and then the benefit of this research I did over the last 24 months. And so I can see how things are, are different, you know, over, over that decade period. And I think that there is always, throughout the, throughout the period, there has always been the sentiment that they're fitting in less and less in the United States, or not, not so much that they're, it's not that they're not fitting in, it's that the culture in the U.S. has changed, right? So it's not that baby boomers themselves specifically feel singled out, if you will, although I think there's more and more of that happening now. It's that they feel that the culture itself in the United States has changed so much, especially in, in terms of everything being a business transaction, you know, so they, these are the kind of people that really want authentic relationships and they don't want to have introductions, which are, hi, how are you? What do you do for a living? You know, they want introductions that are like, hi, how are you? What are you interested in? What are your loves? What are your passions? What are you working on? You know, things of that nature. And as I said in the book, they're looking for, for exchanges that have to do with more than just commerce or more than just business. So there's a, definitely a feeling among the people who have left the United States that this consumer culture, number one, has has taken over and that this idea of family respect, respect for elders and respect for relationships outside of financial exchanges is, is maybe all but right. And then there is the second thing that that US culture has also really become a youth culture over the last you know, five years, which is kind of different than my original study, but that now they are starting to, the newer boomers who are arriving in Mexico are talking more about, I don't feel like I have a place here anymore. I don't feel like television, magazine ads, newspapers, things of this nature are directed to me anymore. You know, everything is about youth and beauty and youth and beauty and youth and beauty. And that means nothing to me. And as I kind of joked in the book, at some point, they all realize there's, there's no more creams or cosmetic procedures that are going to hide, the, hide their age. And they just want to go somewhere where they feel like, you know, they can be themselves. And, and that's what they've, they've found in Mexico. It's interesting to note this idea of ageism. It sounds like the demographic has changed a little bit as we've gone from that early wave of boomers mm-hmm to the later wave, that some of those feelings about ageism have become more clear and defined. I know that was something you were specifically looking for when you started this research and were surprised at the outcome when you were studying the early boomers, but it sounds like maybe the later set of boomers is now confirming some of your earlier theories. Yeah, when I did the the original research project, you know, 10 or 10 or 12 years ago, I mean, I a few people would hint at that, but really, you know, the motivations were more like extending the retirement the, and the, you know, the good community and the sense of adventure and b- being part of an art community. Like you said about San Miguel and stuff like Chapal is also like that where come over the last two years, there's, there's more of a, you know, just a concern with the U S culture in general, right? Like, like that I don't fit in here anymore. And, it, and so it was definitely different. When the boomers come to Mexico, are they working or are they coming to retire? No, most of them are not working. I think 
So one, you can't, you can't really, you can come to Mexico and work for an American company, but you can't just come to Mexico and work for a Mexican company unless you get some sort of residency. But with regard to the boomers, I mean, really the folks that were going down there were looking to retire, you know, and as I said, they're retiring five or six years earlier than their U.S. counterparts. Now, that's not to say that they, they don't work when they get down there. There's, you know, a lot of, uh, not a lot of them, but there are some who work as real estate agents and they help other baby boomers transition out of the U.S. and Canada and find places to live. And then what, what, what was not uncommon was to find, you know, a couple people who'd open a restaurant together or a gift shop or, you know, tours or, hey, let's get a fishing boat, you know. So, so they're, they're not going down there to work per se, but they're, they're working as part of their passion in either these, you know, these hobbies or sport fishing or cooking or something like that. So they're making a life for themselves more than making a living for themselves. You mentioned that one of the major questions that drove your research in the beginning is why leave the U.S.? But let's turn it around a little bit. Why Mexico? Like, is there something in your research you found that was special to Mexico as opposed to any other country or continent in the world? Well, the proximity to the United States is key, right? I mean, I mean, it's key for the exploration, right? So there were people that I talked to who had looked at different places, especially in the earlier cohort. You know, Belize was a very popular place. Costa Rica was very popular 10 years ago. Panama was very popular and is, is, is still fairly popular. But they, they for, for various reasons, they, they, when they got to Mexico, a lot of them said, I, I don't know how to say it. It's just a sense that I belong, like I have found my place. Like, and also the proximity to the United States, the, these folks still have kids. Some of them have grandkids. And so they want to be able to go you know, back north, visit with their family. And then if their family wants to come, that, they, that they're still close enough to do that. You know, you can go to a lot of places in Mexico on a flight under three hours, right, from, from Houston. So there's that. And then I think that the, the, the really interesting thing, and, and this, is, this is how I kind of got into the FIRE movement personally myself. You know, when I, when I published the book and, and started looking for opportunities to talk about it, I never really was in thinking in the finance stuff. You know, I was thinking in the social science and the and the and the, maybe the retirement planning or something like that, but but someone from the fire community came to me to talk to me about the book and introduced me to this idea of geo arbitrage, and and so I really hadn't heard much about that, and and so now that I understand now that I understand more about the fire community, I understand that geo arbitrage plays a big role in this, specifically when it comes to healthcare, because healthcare is so expensive in the United States. And since I said most of these people are upper income earners, you know they're not privy to so a lot of the, you know, we do have some level of socialized medicine in the United States, but 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 they make too much for it. In Mexico, you can you 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 can apply for temporary residency or permanent residency, and then you can enroll in their national health care, which the baby boomers find very comparable to the United States. And they just like they do in the United States, they search out for the best facilities, the best doctors, and they don't have any complaints about their care. You know, the only complaints that they have are a little bit about having to wait longer for, you know, general checkups and stuff like that. But as far as the, the level of care, they don't have any complaints. And so when you take that healthcare savings and you scale it across one year, right? Maybe you're saving $20,000. You scale it across 10 years, you're saving $200,000. You know, if you want to go crazy in, in, th- in 30 years of retirement, I mean, you can see how 
you know, just imagine if someone were to dump an extra $1,000 a month in your pocket, I mean, how would that change your life? And I think once someone has that realization, in addition to the 200% lower cost of living in general, this wonderful culture that still values the elders, if you will, and has, you know, is just, just rich in, in history, you know, you got to say, why not Mexico, right? And not, not why Mexico. In the first half of the show, I talked to Travis Scott Luther about the demographics of those who move to Mexico. After the break, we'll discuss how cheap Mexico actually is. But first. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. So we're talking about reasons why expats move to Mexico. You mentioned proximity to the United States. Certainly, it's easy to get back and forth. You mentioned 
healthcare and how it was less expensive and available. Let's talk about costs in general. How cheap is Mexico compared to your standard U.S. city when compared to groceries or gas or kind of the typical needs we have? Mm -hmm. I'm just finishing up a second book, a follow-up to this book right now, where I do look at that way more in depth. I take 26 Mexican communities, expat communities, and I basically compare them to Denver, which is where I live. And if you look at cost of living surveys uh, in the U.S. over the last 10 years, Denver kind of always seems to fall at the at, at the middle. I think like, you know, El Paso or Texas and Tulsa, Oklahoma are at the bottom. And of course, Manhattan is, you know, at the top. And so Denver kind of operates in the middle. And, and I think that the cost of living in Denver is, is about $5,500 a month, right, for something something decent. Like the most expensive, you know, kind of place in Mexico is Mexico City, and the average cost of living there is about $2,800 a month. So you can already see if you want to live in a metropolitan, nice metropolitan area in a nice neighborhood and stuff, you're, you're looking at almost like half the cost. You take that into, into consideration, you, you, you add the healthcare to it, and it's huge savings. You can go to places like Merida, which are on the Yucatan Peninsula. These are, these, this is a popular destination for you know, some of the lower income baby boomers because they can live over there for a family of two in a rented house with a pool and a garden and a housekeeper and stuff like that for $1,600 a month. So I, you know, on average, I, I, I think that I said, you know, a, a baby boomer couple will spend about $20,000 a year living very well in Mexico compared to, you know, you'd need at least 60,000 a year to do that in Denver. And you've mentioned already a few times in this interview, but I think it's worth talking about again. There's this rumor that Mexico is unsafe. A lot of people hear about drug trafficking and violence and are afraid that if they make such a big move, that it could be deleterious to their health and safety in general. Is that true? Is there any truth to that idea? I think it's definitely true that Mexico is very dangerous in certain areas for certain people. And, and I don't want to minimize the violence that exists in Mexico, but it exists largely for drug trafficking gangs, gang members, politicians, police officers, unfortunately, journalists, unfortunately, but, but people who, who traffic in drug trafficking or, or have some stake in, in drug trafficking. It rarely, rarely, rarely ever bleeds over to expat communities. And the reason that we hear about it when it does is because we actually hear about it every single time it happens, which is very, very rare. And I kind of describe it as the shark attack phenomenon. We hear about every single shark attack that happens to anybody in the United States because they happen so rarely, right? And so it's kind of the same thing in Mexico. But what happens is the press kind of builds this up to give you the sense that sharks are attacking people all the time when it's just not true. <laughs> so it's, it's the same thing with, with Americans being the victims of violence in Mexico. They're, I mean, they are victims of, of, you know, robberies and, and pickpockets and all of the things that we have to deal with in big cities here, but they're not, they're not victims of the, at a higher rate or, or suffer more violence or anything like that. You know, you're still more likely to die in a car accident in Mexico, a scooter accident. You know, you're going to die from so many other things than being stuck in the middle of a drug war. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Would it be safe to say that most expats would characterize their safety as similar or better to what it was in the U.S. before they moved? 
Well, yeah, a majority of them said that they felt just as safe in the United States. And I think a third of them said they felt safer in Mexico than they did in the United States. You know, and I, I, it probably depends on where you move to Mexico from in the United States. You know, you're, you're, I, I did some stat stuff in there and you're, you're more likely to be shot in Chicago, New Orleans, or Washington, D.C. as an American than you ever would be in, in Mexico. So, you know, there are dangerous places here. There are dangerous places there. And, you know, like pretty much the State Department says about every country in the world, practice discretion. Don't walk around by yourself at night. Don't pull out large wads of money. Don't tell people how much money you have. You know, just, just, just be modest and smart. You mentioned that the U.S. varies from city to city, and certainly Mexico varies from city to city, too. Tell us about the top three or four destinations for the boomer expats and why they choose those different areas. Yeah, so the, the, the boomers that I describe in my book largely land in three places. They land in Lake Chapala, which is, like I said, about 30 miles south of Guadalajara. That is the largest uh, population of baby boomer expats in Mexico. It's probably got a year-round population now of 20,000 people. It, it was the first place I visited when I went to Mexico, you know, and I was, I was, uh, this is my first trip out of the country, you know, so, so I go to Mexico and I'm feeling all of those stereotypical feelings that I've been taught to feel by the U.S. media. I rent a car in Guadalajara with my wife and we drive south and I get a little lost and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so screwed here. I don't know Spanish. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to get kidnapped, blah, blah, blah. And I, I get out of the car in Lake Chapala to try and ask some directions and I mean, I'm just surrounded by Americans, right? I mean, it's that densely populated. It's like it's like its own American town. The people there like the 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 views of the lake, certainly, and there's mountains around. It's got a real good reputation for also being an artist community, a place for writers. It's within Mexico. It's a place for kind of healing, if you will. Um, so it, it gets a lot of Mexican tourism as well. And and it's a it's a it's a village, right? It's 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 not metropol it's not major metropolitan. You know, there's not a I think someone I talked to in Lake Chapala a couple of weeks ago told me that they had, you know, maybe just put in their fourth or fifth, you know, stoplight or something like that. So it's still got a very small village feel, even though there's, you know, maybe 20 or maybe even upwards of 30,000 Canadians and Americans there. The the second place is, is, is by population would be San Miguel de Allende, which is just a, about three hours northwest of Mexico City. Also in the mountains, I think the primary attraction there is the weather. It's 72 degrees like every day, all year round. I mean, it's just beautiful. You know, I, San Miguel is my favorite town in Mexico of all the places I've been. It's a Spanish colonial town with great architecture, cobblestone roads, great churches. It's also an artist community. It has one of the best art schools in Mexico there. And just a really special place, you know. A lot of San Miguel buildings, because the weather is so good all year round, they the the, the buildings are kind of built around courtyards, and people live outside probably ninety percent of their lives. You know, every roof in San Miguel is is some kind of patio, so people are just really outside, which which means that there's a lot of attention to like plants and gardening and just just water features. It, it's just, it's really special. It, however, is one of the more expensive places to, to go retire in Mexico because of that. And then probably the third most popular is, is Merida that I talked about before, which is in the Yucatan Peninsula. And that's where there's some really good cost of living. It's, it's not on the beach. It's close to the beach. It's, you know, there's probably an hour drive to the beach. And then the weather can be a challenge. A lot of people talk about that. You know, that's the trade-off for the lower cost of living is really hot, really humid summers. You know, 
if you if you're used to that or can get over that then, then that would be great and then i think on the yucatan peninsula in general i think that's kind of the faster growing area right now for expats and retirement it, it, it had been cabo and puerto Vallarta for a while you know cabo is still a very popular place uh, puerto Vallarta is still a very popular place but as far as when people say I'm, I, I found a good deal or I'm looking for a good deal or I still want something that's not too commercialized, they're really looking on the Yucatan Peninsula, you know, starting at Cancun, moving down to Playa del Carmen. And I think Tulum is probably the, the, the up and coming spot at the moment. And are boomers by and large staying put? Are they settling for good in Mexico or is there a stream of people who stay five or 10 years and then come back? You know, I admit in the book that that's one of the limitations of my study is I didn't really talk to people who had left. So I can't give you an accurate representation of, you know, what's the success rate of people who, who go. But what I, what I did say is I did ask anecdotally, you know, what do you know about your friends who didn't make it? And what are your own concerns? And it, and it seems that late life chronic illness seems to be the thing that, that starts to flush people out because because Mexico is a familial country in which family members take care of the young and they take care of the old, there is not the institutionalized assisted living and nursing care facilities there that we have in the United States. You know, that largely Mexican families don't check their parents into an institution and tell them, see, ya, you know, I'll come see you every two weeks or something like that. And so if, if you do have chronic illness or you're getting up there in your years and you need some some daily assistance. I think that's when people tend to go home. They tend to go back to their families or go back and take advantage of assisted living or nursing care. But that that's the that was the biggest thing that I heard about. And I and I can say that I see that changing. I see that changing in the sense that the more I've studied this and the more I study this more recently, the more I'm seeing these types of facilities popping up in these neighborhoods in Mexico. Somebody also has recognized that there are people who, who Mexico has become their country, you know, not only maybe do they have residency, but they may have become citizens and what as well. And they don't want to leave in their later years. They want to die and be buried in Mexico. And so, so I'm seeing assisted living facilities and nursing home type facilities on a smaller scale start to open up in these areas. And I think we'll probably continue to see that as this increase in uh, migration to Mexico continues. And it accelerates because it, it is definitely accelerating. You know, I, I, we have 1.5 million, at least 1.5 million um, U.S. citizens living in Mexico right now. Let's talk a little bit about non-boomer trends. Now, I understand that is not your area of research, but mm -hmm. you certainly, I'm sure, experienced it. And you mentioned the fire or financial independent retire early movement mm -hmm. and this idea of geo-arbitrage, mm -hmm. getting to early retirement faster by moving to a less cost of living area. Were you encountering a lot of non-boomers, a lot of Gen Xers or millennials or Gen Zers who had followed the boomers in making this migration? Yeah. So the second book I'm working on right now dives more into that. It takes a little, a broader look at people who are ex expats in Mexico. And so what I can tell you from, from the research I've started to, to digest now is that tech entrepreneurs are definitely making their way to Mexico, but they're not going to the same places that the baby boomers are going. In fact, the, the, most people are surprised to find out that the number one location for expats in Mexico in general is Tijuana. And we think of Tijuana as kind of a dirty, dangerous party city, and, and that's just not the case anymore. You've kind of got to look at it as an annex to San Diego. 
And a lot of tech entrepreneurs um, who work in LA and San Diego or operate out of out of California are actually making the drive every day over the border or making the move so that they can live in these wonderful beach condos and have this you know lower cost of living while still bringing in the wages and the salary that they're earning in the United States. Monterey is another place for that. You know, it's it's a couple hours drive from. I think it's Laredo, Texas, and the Monterey. And Monterey is a very advanced technology hub of of Mexico. You know, if you're into manufacturing anything on the on the Baja, the northern part of the Baja Peninsula, there has become very popular for for importing goods to those ports, having things manufactured there in northern Mexico, and and then moving them into the United States. So I'm bullish on on Mexico from a business perspective. You know, especially with things that are going on with China and, and tariffs and, and the cost of, of, of moving things back and forth there. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Mexico as a lot of other entrepreneurs are and saying, hmm, what can we do? What haven't we, what haven't we embraced about this relationship with this country? And what are the entrepreneurial opportunities there that we haven't explored before? Yeah, tech entrepreneurs are one thing. What about the early retirement or super early retirement people? Do you think they're looking towards Mexico also? <laughs> you know, I like. I want to be careful because, like I said, I haven't digested a lot of the research. But it there doesn't really seem to be a middle ground per se, right? It, you you seem to have really young folks and then the older retired retired folks. And as I'm kind of going through these surveys and I see somebody who's like 35 or 45, I'm always like, oh, stop! I want to read. I want to read their story. I want to figure out what they're doing. And those are people who largely seem to have traveled to Mexico a lot as a young person and kind of have fallen in love with it and have decided to, to move down there and try and work or try and start a business, but not necessarily like they're not necessarily financially independent. In fact, I would say that that group in the middle, if I were to describe them as the kind of 35 to 45 year old range are, are probably more likely to be in Mexico because they are low income than because they are financially independent. Your book, as well as this conversation, has been a quite optimistic look at moving from the U.S. to Mexico. Are there any downsides? Was there anything you found over and over again that people complained about or felt wasn't as good in Mexico as it is in the United States? Well, I think there are things that take some getting used to. So we are so time sensitive in the U.S. You know, we have appointments for everything we have anxiety about being late and, and they're in Mexico. It's not like that. So I think when people first get down there, they describe their frustrations as being like, Hey, I was trying to get my refrigerator fixed, or I was trying to get a quote for this or that. And someone said they would come and they didn't, or they weren't there on time. Or I had an appointment myself. I went to, and I had to wait a lot longer than I thought I did or, you know, and so it's just kind of time is different there. And I think that that, is a real adjustment for folks. There's a saying down there that manana never means manana, right? Because manana <laughs> can mean the morning or it can mean tomorrow. And you just, you never know which one you're going to get. But it is that that people come to love, right? Like, oh my God, I don't have to worry about it either, right? I don't like, I don't have to freak out and set my alarm and be there right at nine o'clock. And if I'm there at 902, I don't have to feel bad about it either. So it's this, it's this change in life and change in pace that comes with this kind of time anxiety that people really embrace and love. I think, you know, you know, every road is not paved there, right? There are, uh, like San Miguel, for example, I remember uh, hearing these stories about there's just a lot of stray dogs, right? And it's just part of that city's kind of culture. There's just kind of dogs everywhere. And, you know, new 
expats coming down and being very frustrated about that and trying to want to get involved with the, the city council and make laws about that, which, you know, really did affect their relationship with the locals. The locals were like, hey, this is our place. These dogs, whether you like them or not, are kind of part of our culture. And you can't just come down here and, and, and say you're going to do this, that, and the other thing to change it. So people who are used to being proactive and solving problems either in government or their local municipalities need to understand that you can't do that in Mexico. You know, you, you actually don't have rights at all. And you have to be very careful about, unless you're a citizen about being critical of government or local culture or custom, because you, you, you know, you risk the chance of being asked to leave. So you kind of got to go with the flow. And if you're not able to do that, you're probably not going to be successful there. All right. I'm going to ask you for a non-scientific opinion here, but (laughs) In your travels and in your discussions you've had with the boomers that have retired now in Mexico, are there any other countries that hold a candle? Is there anywhere else, like, if I can't go to Mexico, I'm going to fill in the blank? No. No, there, there's really not. There, and, you know, and like I said, the, the, the exploration has been kind of limited to, you know, Costa Rica, Belize, Panama, you know. Colombia is a big up and coming place. That's like where I'd like to go next and do some research and exploring because I'm getting a lot of good feedback about that. But no, they, they don't, you know, and there is something special about Mexico, which I wish I could describe <laughs> as well, but it is a special place. And I think the people who are there have found their home and they just don't have an interest in looking at anywhere else. What do you think the effect of the COVID pandemic is going to have on the expat community do you think the numbers will decrease or increase, or do you think it won't have an effect at all? Well, you know, this is one of the bummers of, of publishing a book in December and then having to deal with COVID in March <laughs> is that like everybody who was going to travel or consider traveling to Mexico, it was funny, the book came out and it was selling like crazy and then COVID hit and it stopped. And I think that's because everyone became very panicked about travel. Um, I'm, I'm pleased to announce that Mexico is open for business, if you will, and you still can go down there. And, and people, I haven't, I haven't been down there since COVID myself, but people who have said they, they're doing a much better job than even in the U.S., you know, things are, you know, you get your temperature checked for going into a restaurant and you're given hand sanitizer and everything's wiped down. Like they just said, it's a much stricter, more safer feeling experience than here. But with regard to COVID, you know, something that we kind of opened the discussion with was, if these folks have another dip in their retirement, if these late baby boomers have an, suffer more financial consequence because of what the economy is going to become because of COVID, then I think a lot more people are going to have to consider it for, for sure, for sure. You know, and then the election is, you know, I mean, this is a big thing. I mean, you know, I, wherever you stand, you're going to, you know, someone's going to be disappointed, right? And so I don't know how those people who are going to be disappointed, whether Trump is reelected or or Biden is elected, how they're going to react and, and where they're going to go look. But my suspicion is that if Trump is reelected, then we'll see even more renewed interest in people migrating down to Mexico. So, Travis, tell us about your future plans. Have you been eyeing any plots of land in Mexico? Do you see yourself <laughs> leaving the U.S. and living across the border anytime soon? Um, I think within the next seven years, yeah. And San Miguel de Allende is definitely my place. 
you know, I go to Mexico quite a bit and I'll continue to do that. I, I actually had a, a book tour scheduled for November. We'll see if that comes to fruition or not. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, as an entrepreneur who, who works largely digitally and as an author who spends most of my time, you know, writing and researching online, I can do that from anywhere. And when I think about the places that I want to do, and I've been all over the world, you know, I've been to, to almost every country and continent. And even for me, Mexico is, is special. It just it, it feels like home. The pace of life is slower. The stresses are less. And I just feel good when I'm there. So I'll definitely be there within the next seven years. We're just trying to get through our two two young boys right now, get them through school, and uh, and then we'll, we'll probably be making a move. So in closing, tell us about this new book you're working on. And if people are interested in communicating with you or learning more about your research, where can they find you on the internet? Well, you can find this book. It's called The Fun Side of the Wall, Baby Boomer Migration in Mexico. You can get that on Amazon online or Barnes & Noble online. The new book I'm working on, I expect to have out by the end of the year. I don't have a title for it yet, but it's, a, it's again, a more inclusive look at all expats in Mexico, what drives them there, who's going to what regions for what. And then it's 26 in-depth, inter, or I'm sorry, in-depth explorations of expat communities there you know, cost of living, you know, colleges, le- Spanish lessons, all of the things like what do you need to know if you're going to consider a community in Mexico? So I'll have that out by the end of the year. And then if you want to reach out to me, I'm just at travisluther.com or travis at travisluther.com. And you can uh, see more of my research and writing on that website. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Travis Scott Luther. Thank you, Doc. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. Awesome. So that was a lot of fun. And we I definitely feel like we got to a lot of your book. Did you feel like we covered the salient points? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I feel a little out of practice. I haven't, I haven't discussed the book in a while. So I, I appreciate you having me. I'm sorry if I kind of went around in circles there. No, you didn't at all. I thought you were okay. pretty concise. And, and um, I thought, you know, there, it's an interesting book, right? Because I think our my perceptions, I think, were like yours in the sense my idea of why people went to Mexico was not what I thought it would be. And yet, all this whole time, I was considering it as a place that I would go, even though I didn't have the concerns I was pushing on everyone else who was going there, so to speak, right? Right. So I don't have any financial issues, but yet I was thinking it's a great way to live cheaply in a beautiful place with nice weather, with good community, mm-hmm. without this culture and stress we have in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And yet when I was attributing to other people who were considering moving there, I was like, oh, yeah, they're doing it because they're having money to stress. Both. Right. <laughs> it's, an interesting, right. it's an interesting dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Um, It is also interesting that Mexico really is singular in that sense that of all the places to retire, it just seems to have something that other places don't. And universally, right? There's no other country I could think of where people in the U.S. are emigrating at such big numbers. Right. I'd have to think more because it's... um I'm going to think more about it. I'd like to have a better answer. You know, I wonder what the that, numbers are for Canada. Like Canada is also a very nice place to live and the government structure is a little easier to deal with, especially for that group of people, right? The more mm-hmm, wealthy, mm-hmm. kind of socially liberal, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. But 
I don't think you get nearly the number of people going to Canada. Maybe the weather, right? Well, you but you have almost nearly the number of Canadians going to Mexico. It's kind of yeah. crazy. You know, I mean, probably not 1.5 million, but I would say probably 60% of that number. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of Canadians. There. Whenever we visit Mexico, we mm-hmm. run into tons of Canadians mm-hmm. <laughs> everywhere, mm-hmm. at least in the, in the resorts and those kind of areas. But. Right, right, right. Once again, everybody, please support the podcast by taking our short listener questionnaire at earnandinvest.com slash survey. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash S-U-R-V-E-Y or click on the link in the episode notes. I totally appreciate it. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.